For the past several weeks, we have been on a journey. We reflected on how we as Christians understand truth. Truth as crossing the river of unconsciousness, the river Lethe, into remembering our baptism in Jesus Christ. We also reflected on our role as Christians to go deeper, deeper in understanding issues of the day in our polis, in our city, in our nation, by being rooted in the mind of Christ. Today, as our sequence hymn, we sang a hymn on Christian responsibility. We're across the crowded ways of life, where sound the cries of race and clan, above the noise of selfish strife, we hear thy voice, O Son of Man. Do we really? Do we really hear the voice of the Son of Man? As all of you know, General Convention is happening in Baltimore. And uh, this is the first convention in a long time that I have not actually gone to. So as any church polity geek would do, I had two screens, one for the House of Deputies and one for the House of Bishops. And I was glued to my screens until I saw the Avengers movie playing on TV. <laughs> but then, our presiding bishop, Michael Curry, got up in the evening. And the House of Bishops, which, by the way, ranges from the most theologically conservative to the uber-progressive. Presiding bishop, Michael Curry, got up and was talking about the deep existential crisis, he, as the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, yes, an international church, but a church rooted in the soil of the United States, is facing and wondering about the future of our democracy. It was not a partisan conversation. But it was quite political in the genuine notion of being rooted in the city. And the, the silence and the solemnity of the House of Bishops, as they were all lamenting the tearing of the Republic, was stark. And yet they ended with prayer. They ended with prayer. Because it is only in Christ, it is only in prayer that we move and have our very being. Today, I'd like to reflect about how we measure ourselves. What is the standard by which we, as a people of faith, evaluate society 
and our role in it. Our first lesson today tells the story of a shepherd. He was from a small village, and he traveled to a foreign territory, to the king's chapel in a foreign land, because he was compelled by a vision from God. And while he is there, he's offering a stark warning to both that foreign land, to Israel, and to his native land, Judah. This prophet named Amos carries out his ministry in a very interesting time, during a time where geopolitical and economic power for Israel is expanding. Never since David has it been so good for the people of Israel, and yet he calls them out. He calls out Israel and their neighbors for being cruel. Cruelty born from selfishness, selfishly going after prosperity, without regarding the ever-increasing divide between the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor. He calls out their cruelty, their cruelty towards orphans and widows who are left to fend for themselves. He calls out society for neglecting them, calling to mind their responsibility as people of the covenant, as people rooted in faith. He calls out their deficit of compassion. By what standard did Amos measure Israel and Judah? Well, we read in the first lesson, Amos saw the Lord standing beside a wall but with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. A plumb line ensures that a structure is perfectly vertical. And Amos uses this imagery of the plumb line as a symbol of the standard by which God's people are to live. It is a standard, a measure. A standard to be compassionate, loving, seeking justice, and being merciful. All of these traits rooted in the very nature of the God that we worship today. All of these standards were violated in the new prosperity of Israel. And Amos is called by God to remind us, even today, of those very standards. Jesus has this in mind when offering us a parable of how we are to live in the world, how we are to live the gospel today. You know, it's, it's amazing. With uh, the gospel writer, with one strike of the pen, he knocks down lawyers and priests and Pharisees and religious teachers all at the same time. You've got to love the gospel writer. Um, Jesus reminds us that we are to love the Lord with all our hearts, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Yet it's interesting, it's interesting that when given the chance to assist a neighbor in need, it is the priest and the Levite, the deeply religious, who don't do this. In fact, go back to the first lesson. It is curious that the prophet, the, the, the priest Amaziah was also complicit with the king of Israel in neglecting the needs of the poor. 
for all of us, all of them, fell, failed to live into the measure, the, the standard of God, the measure of compassion, love, justice, and mercy. Yet in the midst of the failures of Amaziah in the Old Testament, of the religious folks in the New Testament, stand foreigners, just as Amos was a foreigner preaching to Israel. The Samaritan today is a boundary crosser, a foreigner. Yet these two foreigners live the life of the plumb line. For they are so moved with compassion that they pour out love. In the case of the gospel today, it is the Samaritan who pours out love by physically bandaging the victim's wounds, mercifully giving him ointment and sustenance, and being just, being just to the innkeeper by offering what he could to save that stranger robbed at the side of the road. He lives into the standard of the plumb line envisioned centuries ago by Amos. Please take out your bulletins. On the cover of your bulletin today is a sculpture with an amazing story. My, my former church, Christ Church Cathedral in Cincinnati, commissioned Clark Fitzgerald to create that sculpture. The desire of the rector at that time was to create a sculpture that would highlight the role of the church as the moral conscience of the city. It was later given to Coventry Cathedral in England as a gift of the people of Cincinnati. Why? Well, on the night of November 14, 1940, the German army military, led by Gerning, unleashed nearly 450 bombers for an air raid on Coventry. He mercilessly and ruthlessly timed the bombing in concert to the full moon. With utter depravity in this darkness of a dark night over 11 hours, he conducted what he called Operation Moonlight Sonata, dropping 500 tons of highly explosive weapons and 40,000 firebombs onto the city. His aim was not only to physically destroy that city, but to break the morale and the psyche of the people. More than 1,400 people were killed or injured that day. And one of the buildings was Coventry Cathedral. The only thing that was left following that blitz was the outer walls, a massive uh, tower and spire. Just imagine. Imagine seeing hundreds of years of history decimated in one night. Yet, there was Christian resilience. 
The community wanted to rebuild the cathedral in some form. So the morning after the bombing, the cathedral's stonemason took two charred oak beams from the debris and tied them together in the form of a cross. The local Anglican priest plucked from the ruins three medieval nails and fashioned them into a second cross. These two images became Coventry's post-war witness, symbols of both Good Friday and Easter, for they conveyed that physical destruction does not have the final word, for we are measured by the plumb line of a living and merciful God. The rebuild of the third Coventry Cathedral would be a labor of love, living into God's compassion for the stranger, forgiveness rooted in mercy, and justice for the poor. The measure of effectiveness would be the plumb line and a cross of nails, for the cross is at the center. Rather than build a new cathedral on the same site, the architect, inspired by a vision from God, retained the shelled walls as a memorial. In his words, the ruined shell stretches towards the sky in perpetual Calvary. In the midst of hatred, cruelty, and a foreboding sense of gloom during the post-war era, the new Cathedral Church of Coventry would be built as an act of faith, a radical act of God's mercy. Today, that very cathedral measures its ministry by the way it forms people in prayer and reconciliation, in reducing conflict in a world that is so mired in it, coming to terms with their contemporary slogan, remember and forgive. <clears throat> Our plumb line as a church in the midst of a deeply divided nation Violence in the world is how we foster compassion, love, a sense of justice and mercy that percolates not only in our midst, but in the ways we offer healing and forgiveness amidst calamity and utter senselessness. Those are the standards, the plumb line, <laughs> by which we are to measure our ministry and the impact we are to make in the world. That, by the way, is why we come to church. That's why church attendance is important, to clothe us, to remind us of those very values, those virtues that we are to live in community. Yes, in today's lessons, we offer that hope by ordering our lives through the ultimate plumb line, God's compassion, love, justice and mercy, those are the standards by which we are to measure ourselves and our church and how we are called to be the salt and light of this earth. So what are the standards through which we measure society? Kierkegaard raises the question of whether Christianity is a hobby horse or is Christianity the path through which we measure our lives as your parish priest. I invite you to consider your Christianity seriously. It is not a hobby horse. It is a lifelong call. 
I pray that Christianity is the path through which you measure your lives, for it provides meaning and makes sense of the world. Yet I offer the caution that this path is beautiful, yet difficult. In the words of ethicist Stanley Harawas, if it were easy, Jesus would not have been crucified. No, what determines our way of negotiating with the world is not some rational ethic, not some universal feel-good notion, but a life based on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Harawas continues to say that's what makes Christian ethics embarrassing. For didn't Paul say, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God? So anyone who is baptized into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has the possibility of living the way that God would want anyone to live. So yes, the life-centered ethic of Jesus is offered to everyone, but can't be lived by everyone. It is a life ethic that offers God's standard, God's plumb line of compassion, love, justice, and mercy that crosses all boundaries. Beloved, I leave you with this. Just imagine for a moment, just imagine if we as individuals, if we as a church measured ourselves by the metrics of compassion, love, justice, and mercy, <clears throat> might we not change this world?